say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Two parts to this episode today. James Nyber, author of a book about the terrible murder of Marion Parker in 1927 Los Angeles, uh, joins me today as uh, my primary guest. But before we get to this interview, another guest. I'm happy to have back with me Mark Lee Gardner, who has more hours, I believe, on this, this show than any other author. We talked for about an hour about his book, To Hell in a Fast Horse, Billy the Kid, Pat Garrett, and the Epic Chase to Justice in the Old West months ago. And we also did a two-part series about the Jesse James gang in the Northfield Bank Raid in Minnesota, based on his book called Shot All to Hell. I asked him to join me today because I wanted to talk to him about the most recent photograph of Billy the Kid that has surfaced and get his opinion on it, along with the rash of other photographs in recent years, purporting to show brand new images of historical figures in American history. Thank you for doing this. Oh, sure. Happy to. Yeah. And I'm glad to uh, spend more time talking to you than any other individual. So, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so what, would you mind describing for my listeners this, this most recent photograph alleged to be Billy the Kid? Uh, what does it look like? Well, are now when you say most recent, uh, there's a couple this year. <laughs> Oh, they, okay. They turn up fairly. They turn up fairly frequently. Yeah. Yeah. Let Let's talk about both of them. Okay. Well, so I think the one you're referring to is a, a group photo, which purports to picture not only Billy the Kid, but his killer, Sheriff Pat Garrett. Is that the one you're talking about? That is the one. Yes. Okay. All right. So that one, uh, uh, you know, that one's been around actually for. I don't know, a couple of years or, or maybe longer, but uh, forensic reports came in uh, that, um, you know, were favorable uh, for uh, an authentication of that image. But, but, and that was widely publicized in November of this year. But that same month, another tintype 
popped up. And, you know, the media jumps all over these. You know, it is fascinating. I, I understand why. Um, they're not very critical. But another one popped up, and it's a tintype that shows two young men. And the finders believe that it shows Billy the Kid and his brother Joe. And I believe this, uh, uh, they bought it in Tombstone, Arizona for like $13 or something. Oh, so, my goodness. <laughs> uh, uh, the original prices for both images are fairly close. Uh, but uh, the estimated value, if they were, Indeed, Billy the Kid ten times would be, you know, supposedly much higher. So yeah, I mean, where where this all started, Eric, is um, back in 2011. Um, the only known photograph, tintype, 19th century image of Billy the Kid was sold at auction in Denver, Colorado, and I was at the auction. And with the buyer's premium, it sold for 2.3 million dollars, and it's it was bought by William Koch, who's a huge Old West history enthusiast. And it brought so much money because it is unassailable as far as its provenance. Um, when Pat Garrett published his book on Billy the Kid in 1882, uh, an engraving based on that image is the frontispiece. Um, in fact, when an article appeared, I think it was in the Boston Police Gazette or the Boston Police News, even before Billy was dead, it was reporting on his capture, an engraving of that image was published. Uh, so it's there's no questioning that that is indeed the accepted image of Billy the Kid, and and what makes it so I think uh, desirable, in addition to the fact that it's that it's um, you know there's there's no disputing that it is Billy the Kid, uh, he actually held that image. Um, it's uh, a, you know probably the photographer with the, the tintype process. Sometimes cameras had four lenses. I mean, you, you know, you, you wanted to make as much money as you can, and if you could make more than one, you know, plate or tintype or image at a time, uh, you know, usually the customer would want four, or, or you know, they, they just won't want one. They want to give one to mom or the girlfriend or whatever. So they would have a single plate that would have four identical images, and they would cut them apart. And so Billy gave this one to his good buddy Dan Diedrich, and it stayed in that family forever until 2011. So there was a chain of ownership also. But we know that other images or other uh, tintypes from that plate did exist at one time. Pat Garrett had one, which is now lost. Um, apparently, Paulita Maxwell, Billy's girlfriend, she gave one to Delavina, the family servant, and hers burned in the fire. And I don't know if we know we're the fourth one who had that. But anyway, it's, it's not just the fact that this is a tintype of the outlaw Billy the Kid, the only one. That was taken, you know, late 1880 or early 1881. But Billy the Kid would have had that in his possession, so that makes it, you know, it just makes it fun to think about. So when that sold for 2.3 million, people started just like people that watch Antiques Roadshow and there's a Gibson Lloyd Lower F5 mandolin. This is worth 250 thousand. Gee, I've got a Gibson mandolin, and I wonder if that's a Lloyd Lower, you know. So. You know, people started looking and they started going through those boxes of instant relatives at the antique shops and the flea markets. And that looks a little bit like, I think that's a little, looks a little like Billy the Kid. And so every few months, a contender pops up. And, uh, and that's where, that's where we are now. There's been, there's been at least, uh, two quote authenticated images, uh, since, uh, the 2.3 million sold. And that's not counting the two that I'm talking about from November of this year. So. Okay, 
So I, I wasn't aware of the other one with, with he and his brother. Right. Has this been proven not to be Billy the Kid in your estimation? It, that Well, what I guess the, what I would say is that has not been submitted to the forensics experts. Um, the the group photo that purports to be Billy the Kid, Pat Garrett, and Barney Mason, and I think Dirty Dave Rudabaugh, that one was submitted to uh, forensics experts for analysis. And that's the one that made the New York Times. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I would love for a, a, a real photo of Billy the Kid to surface. I, I'm not against. I'm certainly not against. I mean, that would that would be a dream come true to have another image of Billy the Kid, or I would love to have a, an authenticated image of his mother, um, you know, or, or his brother Joe. We only have one photo of him as a very old man. Um, but I've got to say, uh, the media just buys into these analysis far too quickly, and and takes a, you know, it's it's funny how the New York Times you know, is is renowned for its critical reporting and its scoops. But when it comes to Ability the Kid tintype, they just take it hook, line, and sinker. I mean, they just accepted everything uh, that the experts were telling them. Oh, you know, I'm looking at it right now. The caption says, this tintype shows what historians believe is a photo of outlaw Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett taken in 1880. I wrote him a letter, which I didn't publish. And I said, I don't know any historian that believes that photo is Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett, including yours truly. Um, but you know, it, it was, it, it, it's a, I don't know. They're just something that's, that's, uh, fascinating and entices them. And, you know, they, they see that title before a name and this forensic expert works for this and does this. And, and he's identified and says that this is very likely based on my computer programs that this is indeed Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett. And, uh, but in my opinion, it's not. So yeah, I, I want to ask you about that too. It, it's not really a historian that's authenticating these these photos, as you've mentioned, but a facial recognition expert, right? Yeah. Using software. Yes. That's what this is all about. Can Can you explain that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't have this software, so so I hope I don't get it wrong. But you know, they take measurements um, of the face. You know, certain points. There's certain points that they look at. And, and take measurements and, you know, they'll do overlays, uh, of the, you know, the, the, the photo in question with the authentic, uh, image that, that it was sold at auction for 2.3 million and, you know, see how much, uh, of a match. I hate to use the word match, but how close, uh, the images are. And generally these reports and for this late, for the image we're talking about, there, there was a report. And some of these new these articles, but they only publish like two pages from a larger report. So I haven't seen the, you know, what the entire report says, but they use words like, quote, very likely, um, that you'll never see 100% or, the, uh, you know, unquestionably, um, you know, you'll never see that. It's always like very likely, or I believe this to be, and that kind of thing. Um, so, uh, and the other thing to, you have to really be careful about is that, um, when you see these overlays, and uh, they did a documentary on another tintype that, that, that folks refer to as the croquet tintype that supposedly shows uh, Billy the Kid and his cronies playing croquet at a wedding outside a school building. Yeah, yeah. We actually talked about that a little right. during okay. the Billy the Kid episode. Yep. Okay. So they'll use this kind of slow motion or fade and overlay, and you'll see like, wow, you know, that's, 
that is amazing. It just kind of trans, you know, transforms uh, from you know croquet Billy into the the uh, authentic Billy. Wow, you know. But you can do that with almost any any photo. You can overlay, and it's you know it's kind of you know it just it looks like they're the same or similar. And I think you know the the real problem with this this group photo. And 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 I'm, what I'm getting to is is this analysis that's done in these the software programs. In the end, there's an amount of subjectivity to, uh, you know, it's with the operator because, for instance, the guy that's supposed to be Billy in this group photo, it's very blurry. Um, so who is deciding where you're putting the markers or your marking points? I mean, who's deciding where the edge of the jaw is? Who's deciding where the, you know, the end of the nose is? It is so blurry. I mean, I can't, I, you know, I wouldn't know. I would be guessing, okay, if I'm doing a measurement of the nose, I think the nose ends here. Um, now, the authentic image of Billy the Kid is also not that clear. And there's a side of his face where his, his jaw is kind of washed out. So, you know, if you're comparing, it, you end up having to be a little bit subjective in deciding where you're going to start your measuring points. To compare, and the other thing that you would argue is how scientific um, is your analysis if the person is not posed exactly the same way, exactly the same distance from the camera. I mean, to me, you know, you would have to have the person in the same studio um, and same time of day, same lighting, same type of camera to really do a scientific comparison um, because there's too many variables. I mean. The head may be tilted up a little bit or tilted down, and so wouldn't that change your measurements? Um, you know, I, I just, uh, to me, comparing one blurry photo to another blurry photo, I don't care how great a computer program you have, um, it's questionable uh, what the results, and it's going to be somewhat subjective. Right, right. Well, well my completely unscientific opinion, <laughs> looking at that photograph purportedly of Billy the Kid and and Pat Garrett, mm -hmm. it doesn't look like him to me. I mean, I can see a little bit of a resemblance with the sure. with the croquet Billy the Kid photo. I mean, the right. slimness of the body. Well, and see, I think I think that's what started, if I read the news reports correctly, and I've not had any interviews with the owner, but if I recollect correctly, um, the owner who bought this in North Carolina at a flea market uh, first thought that there was a resemblance to Pat Garrett. I think that's because the guy that's on the right has a thin face, a big bushy mustache, a thin nose, and, you know, kind of the eyebrows uh, similar to Garrett. And, uh, now, you know, I can see where someone would see, you know, well, it looks a little like Pat Garrett. It's not Pat Garrett. I mean, it does not look like Pat Garrett. And I mean, I've seen every photo of Pat Garrett, and, and I don't uh, think this guy is Pat Garrett. But I could see where someone would think, you know, hey, that could be Pat Garrett. And so once you once you become a believer that that's Pat Garrett, then you start wondering, okay, who could these other guys be? And so then I think they went to, wow, that, that may be Billy the Kid that's sitting there in the back. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that, that's, that's how this kind of got started, I believe, was that uh, if anybody has a resemblance to anyone, it's the guy that has the resemblance to Pat Garrett. But I think we talked about this before, that – um, the last thing you want to go on is resemblance. Um, you know, there's doppelgangers. I mean, there's, there are people, if you go to, to, uh, the Hollywood Walk of Fame, 
that are getting tips because they look like Clark Gable or Marilyn Monroe. Um, you know, I had people come up to you and say, wow, you really remind me of my cousin, so-and-so. I mean, resemblance is, is the last thing uh, that you want to go on. I, you know, that, that guy resembles, well, you know, millions of tintypes were taken, and there are going to be people that look like other people uh, in those uh, tintypes. You know, the, the most famous one, I don't know if you saw this online, but uh, there, was a, there was a big article, and it, the headline was, uh, um, uh, is Nicolas Cage a vampire? And it was this, the reason it was said there was that somebody had found this 19th century, it was like an ambrotype or something, and the guy looks exactly like Nicolas Cage. I mean, it's, it's uncanny. And so, you know, God, that's, I do remember yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, people can look like other people. You, you, and that's why we haven't talked about this word yet. That's why historians look for provenance. Um, you know, that chain of ownership, you know, digging something up at an antique mall, you've got uh, a huge hurdle uh, ahead of you because, uh, it may, it may look uncanny, um, in its resemblance to Abraham Lincoln or, John Wilkes Booth, but without that provenance, you know, it's just, I mean, you, you really have to have that and show, you know, how this, how did this photo of Pat Grant Blizzy kid show up in North Carolina? I mean, to me, isn't it more likely that this, these guys are the Hatfields and McCoys? <laughs> because, I mean, we know that's a lot closer to North Carolina uh, than New Mexico territory. Oh, very true. So what is, is the likelihood of, of Pat Garrett? posing for a photograph with Billy the Kid. Would, would that have been a, a realistic sitting? Yeah, I think it's possible. Yeah, I think it's possible that that could have happened. Uh, the, the, the scenario that the owner puts forward is that this was after uh, Billy the Kid had been captured by Pat Garrett. Um, you know, there's another photo years ago that was published in the book that was supposed to be a picture of Pat Garrett on a horse and Billy the Kid, who's in handcuffs. And you know, it's supposedly taken at Las Vegas, and and then and, you know, since that book was published, that's been shown to be uh, you know not what it was purported to be. Um, but it, you know, it's certainly possible, and and I would love. I mean, it would be a dream come true to have a photo like that of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. It would be worth all the publicity that these photos are getting. Uh, the problem is, is that you know everybody's jumping on the bandwagon and and excited, but. Uh, the evidence just doesn't back it up that, that, you know, these things are what the quote experts say they are. And it's obviously all about the money. I, I think I read somewhere that the photograph of the croquet game, supposedly again with, with Billy the Kid, was, was valued somewhere in the range of $5 million. Yeah. Well, see, and I, again, who comes up with that? You know, some auction house put a value for insurance purposes. But, you know, what criteria are they using? I mean, the, the, the tintype that Billy the Kid held in his hands that we know without a doubt is authentic, and it's the only authentic image we have, you know, sold for $2.3 million. Well, you know, here's a tintype of Billy the Kid and supposedly his regulator buddies. I mean, how did they come up with, you know, $5 million? And especially uh, when it's controversial and it's questioned. I mean, most historians, uh, and I'm talking about, you know, Billy the Kid, historians don't believe that that image is Billy the Kid and the regulators. So, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I do not believe it's sold. So, um, uh, you know, uh, and, you know, here's the other thing when it comes to, to historic photography. 
that image has been plastered all over, you know, papers and the internet. Uh, and sometimes the higher value is for the quote unpublished image. Uh, and that one's been thrown out there everywhere. So to me, it, it might lessen the value a little bit, you know, that the fact it's so available, um, and it's so known. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, the other thing we, and we were talking about, I wanted to get back to the, the analysis, the facial recognition, and to show that it's not a perfect science and it's far from it. Um, but the croquet image, uh, their forensics photo expert was a man named Kent Gibson, uh, who's been in this field for a very long time. I don't know him, um, but, uh, you know, he's apparently worked, uh, you know, with, with the trial courts and the lawyers and, and identifying images. Well, he was recently in the news because he uh, analyzed a photograph that purported to be Amelia Earhart and her navigator. I believe his name was Fred Noonan. And uh, this was supposedly after they had been captured by the Japanese. And it was a History Channel documentary that put forward the theory, which has been out there for a long time, that uh, they had been captured by the Japanese. And now they had supposedly you know, evidence. And here's a photo of them, you know, uh, taken, you know, that this guy uh, says, oh, yeah, it's very likely that this is Fred Noonan and Amelia Earhart. Well, shortly after this documentary aired, there was some blogger, a Japanese blogger, who found that same photo published in a book that came out two years before the fatal flight. Um, and the photo expert had no explanation as to, you know, uh, why that would be, you know, uh, after identifying or saying it was very likely that this shows Amelia Earhart. So it's not perfect. It's far from it. Uh, and uh, that's the problem with, you know, not, you know, going without provenance alone, you know, not having your provenance and going just on facial recognition technology. It's just, you know, it's not reliable. Right. Well, well, I guess that the bright side of all of this is that it gets some of these historical figures out in front of a national audience again. <laughs> exactly. Well, to me, you know, I, I always, I mean, I've always said that I, uh, history, when we have controversy with history or historical subjects, that means that history is still alive. If we know everything there is to know about Billy the Kid or Jesse James, it's really dead to the world. You know, so I welcome, you know, these stories. And, uh, you know, I do. It, it really frustrates me that that reporters don't take more of a critical um, take on it and look. And, you know, I mean, the New York Times article had no dissenting opinion anywhere in that piece. I mean, it, like I said, it, they bought it hook, line and sinker. And yeah, now we, and, and, and unfortunately that validates that, you know, so not only do you have the forensics experts saying this is probably Pat Gary and Billy the Kid, but when the New York Times writes a positive piece, that's validation, uh, for this image. You know, I, you know, it was in the New York Times and, uh, you know, it's, it's been authenticated and, you know, they have a caption that says historians believe. Um, so, uh, that's, that's the frustrating part for me as a historian. But like you said, I welcome whenever these things get in the news, and I I hope that with all these hunts and all the new stuff, that maybe that leads to an actual photo of Billy the Kid surfacing. And uh, to me, uh, I I feel like there's a very high probability that there is a picture of Billy the Kid as a child, um, either taken in Indianapolis or where they were in Wichita. They were in Denver for a short time or Santa Fe. There were photographers in all those places. And even the poorest families, 
uh, would have photos made of their children. So if a photo services, it's most likely going to be of Billy the Kid as a child. Um, it, it's probably out there, but it's probably like a lot of photos. If you go to antique stores and collect them like I do, it's probably has nothing written on the back. So somebody could have that in their shop and we'll never know that that's actually a little, little, uh, Henry McCarty, uh, you know, Billy, who would become the famous outlaw Billy the Kid. I would imagine it would be a lot harder to, to validate something like that because it would be people change. Yeah, exactly. It would be, but I, but I'm, I, I feel certain that that photo was made, you know, it's like I say, you know, the poorest families would, you know, scrimp and, and have money and to go to the studio and, and have a picture of their children. Uh, and every town they lived in had a photographer. Uh, so, uh, so anyway, you know, my, you know, I would, it would just be so cool if, if there was like a little carte de visite and it said, you know, Henry McCarty, Wichita, Kansas on the back. So, uh, uh, that'll be a little harder to find, though, I think. Well, this has been excellent. C- can I ask you if you have anything to plug? What are you working on these days, Mark? Well, you know, my uh, my latest book was uh, on Theodore Roosevelt and the Rough Riders, and it just came out in paperback uh, this year. So that was a real fun one. But now I'm working on a, a, a dual biography of sorts of the Lakota leaders, Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull. And uh, that's taken me all over the country. I've been up to Canada, you know, where Sitting Bull and his followers fled after Little Bighorn, been to historical societies in North Dakota, South Dakota, Missouri, Nebraska, um, Illinois, actually. So, yeah, so uh, that it's it's a challenge like they all are, but it's it's a fascinating story. Oh, that's spectacular. Well, well thank you so much again for doing this. Uh, I appreciate it. Oh, happy to. It's always fun to talk about uh, my old pal, Billy the Kid. Again, I've been talking to Mark Lee Gardner, prolific author and historian of the old American West. We will be back after a brief break. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, And was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences. What made the Vikings go berserk? 
And can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. And we have returned. My next guest is James L. Nyber. He is a film historian who has published over 20 books and hundreds of articles. His books include Buster Keaton's Silent Shorts, the Jerry Lewis films, the Clint Eastwood westerns, and the monster movies of Universal Studios. However, the book we're about to discuss, Butterfly in the Rain, the 1927 abduction and murder of Marion Parker, is far more serious in subject matter than those. Thank you for joining me. Great to be here. Thanks. What prompted you, as, as someone who writes about classic Hollywood cinema, to write a true crime book about one of the most gruesome crimes in Los Angeles history? Well, uh, several years ago, I was going through microfilm and uh, on a completely different subject. I think it was uh, either one of the Buster Keaton books I did or maybe the one on uh, Fatty Arbuckle on silent comedy. And as I was going through the New York Times looking at different articles, I saw these screaming headlines about Marion Parker's abduction. And I saw her picture and how her parents were all upset and how she was abducted from school and everything else. And uh, the principal or assistant principal let her go with this guy who was a stranger. And I'm thinking, wow, uh, I wonder if they ever found that little girl safely. And because it was a 1927 newspaper, I could like scroll up and see what happened next. Well, it turned into this huge mystery, um, this absolutely horrific uh, exchange of ransom money, uh, you know, the ransom notes coming to the family, uh, the exchange of ransom money. Um, and when the uh, money was given, there, there was a bag thrown out of an automobile and the car sped off. The father goes running up to it and it's a sack that contains only the head and torso of the child. And I'm, I'm reading these articles as they go and I'm like, Oh my God, this is terrible. Did they ever catch that monster? And so I had to read even further. And suddenly I realized, well, if this is compelling someone like me who has no interest in this sort of thing, really, uh, you know, my interests lie elsewhere. Um, there might be a book here that, I could do because I always wanted to try and do something outside of my field to see if it would fly, you know. Um, so I gathered all the information I could. Uh, I found, you know, found out as many things as I could, as many details as I could, even what happened to all the people involved in the case later on. Uh, Marion, for instance, had a twin sister. and I wanted to know how long she lived. Did she get married? Did she have children? Things like that. And I found out information not only about the case, which turned out to be a compelling mystery uh, with a frightening, fascinating conclusion, but uh, I also found out, uh, you know, the, the afterward, the, you know, what happened to the people afterward, and I managed to put a book together. Well, I didn't know how to sell this particular book. I, I know my own field, but I didn't know where to go with this one, so I uh, got an agent, and he shopped it around. And uh, everybody said the same thing. Um, it's a great story. It's very well written, but it's too long ago. And I'm, you know, at the same time, a movie about the Black Dahlias playing at the theaters. So um, anyway, I, uh, I, I kind of put it aside because it just never went anywhere. Well, many years later, um, 
I read that the agent who had hawked it around so hard for me uh, had passed away. And so I thought, well, you know what? Maybe I should dust off that old manuscript and see if it would go anywhere. Well, I wrote to my, sent an email to my publisher, my current publisher who publishes uh, uh, my film books. Well, one of them, I've worked with several. And um, they started a true crime unit fairly recently at that time. And so I thought, hey, yeah, I've got a book that's done. <laughs> Would you like to take a look at it? And they said, sure. So I sent it to them. And they were happy with it, and they published it, and away we go. Here we here it is. That's interesting. And as someone who operates a podcast based on true crime history, not nothing is too old to be interesting. <laughs> that, that's no, my absolutely. Take. Yeah. Yeah. So let's start by setting the scene. Talk about Los Angeles in 1927. What was it like? Well, 1927 was a really exciting period. In American history, you know, everything was going great. You know, you had, uh, you know, the uh, it was before the stock market, stock market crash. So you had all these this great jazz music and you had the movies at the theater with people like Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton, who we talked about before. And uh, you had, um, you know, Lucky Lindy and uh, all, all this cool stuff is going on. And so it was a really exciting, wonderful time. And it's also so far back. I mean, we as kids would be warned, don't talk to strangers, don't do this, don't do that. Well, back then, the times were innocent enough where a guy just showing up at a school and saying, hey, I work with Marion Parker's dad, uh, and he got hurt, and so I have to bring her home. I, I was told to come pick her up and bring her home. And with little hesitation, the assistant principal says, okay, Marion, you're supposed to go home. What nobody stopped to think about was, Marion's got a twin sister. Why is he only bringing one of the kids home? Nobody's asking any questions. It was really kind of a slipshod thing. But that was the period then. You know, it, I guess people trusted each other more. Now, the very idea, I was a teacher for 30 years. Uh, I'm retired now, but uh, the very idea of some stranger <laughs> coming along and saying, hey, I got to pick up so-and-so and bring him home. Well, no, that would be checked out quite thoroughly. I mean, Phone calls would be made. Uh, there was a pink emergency card with each kid to make sure the name is on it and everything. And they'd be awfully careful before they would ever let somebody leave, especially, you know, a young child, only 12 years old. So uh, these times were just so completely different than the ones we know now. I'd like to ask you about the Parker family. Uh, who were they? What business was the father in? And, and what was their life like prior to their world being upended by this horrific crime? Well, they were actually a very, very ordinary family. That They had same thrust upon them when this terrible thing happened. But uh, other than that, uh, Perry Parker was a banker. You know, he was a very ordinary, nice guy. He got up, went to work, you know, took care of his family. Uh, his wife stayed at home, you know, took care of the children. He had an older son along with uh, the twin girls. And they lived a very normal, uh, basic American family existence for that time. Uh, they didn't bother anybody. Nobody bothered them. There was really nothing, you know, out of the ordinary about their lives. And all of a sudden, this comes crashing down. And they not only have to deal with the horrific, horrific tragedy, but also the fact that now they're famous. Now they're recognized. Now they can't 
go somewhere and not be recognized. And unfortunately, um, they all lived a long time after the incident, and that never completely went away. There was always uh, somebody that wanted to talk to them. Whenever a terrible thing would happen, they'd get back to the Parkers and say, hey, you know, do you have any comment on this that happened compared to what happened to your daughter maybe as much as 10, 12 years ago? And they didn't like that, and they didn't like uh, the the sort of notoriety they got any more than they liked the fact that uh, this terrible, terrible thing happened to them. They were just a very ordinary group of people. What was Marion Parker like? Marion Parker and uh, her uh, sister were completely opposites. Her sister was uh, Marjorie. Um, Marjorie was a very much a girl's girl. You know, she was, you know, the very girly type of girl. Whereas uh, Marion was more of a tomboy. You know, she'd go out and be playing football with the boys and stuff like that. And uh, uh, even to the point where uh, if the two of them would go to the movies, uh, Marion would re- react very animatedly to what was playing then. You know, yeah, the Rin Tin Tin Adventures, the Douglas Fairbanks swashbucklers, or the slapstick comedy of uh, the comedians we were talking about, uh, where uh, Marjorie would sit quietly watching the movie. Uh, Marion would be more animated, more you know, responsive. But the the other part of Marion's personality was she didn't like to be away from home very much. Uh, uh, I don't know if you'd call it shyness, but uh, she was unsettled about even if uh, she was invited to sleepovers uh, at one of her friends' house, she didn't like staying overnight away from home. And that was a little unsettling to her. Yeah, she's just a little kid, and um, so so the fact that this kidnapper took her away uh, was really traumatic for her almost at the very start. Not at the very start, but almost at the very start. So I want to switch to the kidnapper. His name was William Edward Hickman, correct? Can can you talk about his his background and where he came from? Well, uh, what's interesting about Hickman is uh, he wasn't from the Los Angeles area, and um, he, he, he had an entire life, you know, of his own, but he, he was, you know, a little unsettled as a person because his mom was really off kilter. And uh, I, I guess there was some, you know, heredity sort of thing going on. But he had problems where he at first was a good, talented student and was especially good at debating. And then I guess some high school debate thing happened where he worked really hard at it and he lost. And it made him kind of angry and he, he, I guess he had a quest to be noticed, be famous, get some notoriety. Uh, he started out with some petty crimes, and eventually he uh, decided, I want to do something big. I want to do something grandiose. And with very little planning, he did this kidnapping. And uh, the reason what happened to Marion did happen is because it finally got to the point where he realized he was in over his head and he just wanted to make everything go away, and so he killed her. So Marion was 12 years old, and her world begins to fall apart on the day of December 15th, 1927. Can, can you talk about this day? What what happened to her once she went to school? Yeah, she went to school, and uh, I guess there was some kind of Christmas party or something uh, that day. It was probably, they, they had like the Christmas, and you know, winter vacation from school then as well as they did, you know, when we were in uh, school. And um, 
Marion went to uh, Marion went to school, and Marjorie waited for her afterwards. And uh, when she didn't come, well, she went home herself. And uh, the parents, you know, weren't real concerned at first because a lot of times Marion would stay after school and help clean up after a party, you know, help pick up, you know, she, you know, like the teachers and she would like help be a helper. Well, uh, after a while it got kind of late. So they called the school and, uh, they said, Oh, you know, I'm wondering, you know, I should probably come and pick up Marion. It's starting to get dark out. And, uh, they said, Oh no, Marion went home with your friend when we heard about your accident. And, uh, the Perry Parker, the father said, I had no accident. I've been home all day. He was home celebrating his. He took the day off uh, to be with his wife to celebrate his 40th birthday. And uh, that's what happened. This terrible thing happened. And at first, uh, when Hickman explained to Marion she'd been kidnapped, she wasn't scared at first. She thought it was kind of a neat little adventure. And she didn't feel because Hickman was kind of a small quiet, not a real scary looking guy. He was just kind of a plain sort of a person. And I mean, he, you know, was sending ransom notes. And at the same time, he took Marion to see a movie. (laughs) Uh, He uh, got her something to eat. They went back to his place and she was playing records on his phonograph. And uh, everything was okay. But, but when the ransom that night, the ransom exchange that night, got kind of botched because the police followed uh, Perry Parker, you know, to try and capture him. Well, uh, Hickman noticed the police and he just took off and the ransom didn't happen. Well, a day later, Marion started to get spooked about being away from home, which is an ordinary part of her personality. So she's crying, insisting on going home and uh, Hickman's getting more and more stressed out. So he, decided, I, I, I got to make this go away. I got to, you know, erase this. And so he impulsively takes a towel and puts it around her neck and, and, and he strangles her. And after he strangled her, he figures, well, I have to dispose of the body. So he brings her into his bathtub and dismembers her. And that's how that night when the uh, ransom exchange was to happen, uh, Perry Parker found just her head and torso in that sack and her eyes had been stitched open. It's just I, gruesome is not a strong enough word to describe it. How, so how did he convince a teacher to hand her over to him? I mean, what was this exchange like? That, that teacher must have, have felt horribly guilty afterwards. Oh, uh, yeah. She died in an insane asylum. But um, uh, the, the teacher, well, it was an assistant principal, I believe. And um, Hickman somehow... I don't know if I can call it charming, but it's not too far away from that. He had like a very relaxed innocence. The same reason why Marion, who didn't like to be away from home, wasn't scared for an entire overnight with this guy because he was that innocent and ordinary and plain. And there is sort of a comforting vibe coming from him, if that makes any sense at all. And that's why the woman, the the assistant principal, felt comfortable. I mean, one quick phone call would have shown that, you know, he probably, then Hickman would have probably run away and he would have ended up getting get caught and he would have moved on or got busted for attempted kidnapping at the very least. But the fact that she let Marion go, 
well, she had to live with that, and that's why she ended up in an asylum. But um, yeah, that uh, it, Hickman just had a certain relaxed aura around him where nobody seemed to feel threatened, even within the realm of this terrible thing he did. So the meeting between Parker and Hickman happened at the corner of Fifth Street and South Manhattan Street in Los Angeles at about 8 p.m. on December 17, 1927. How much money was Hickman asking for, and how did the exchange go between Perry Parker and Hickman? It was only $1,500. I, I realized that was more money in 1927 than it is in 2017. But the fact that he wanted it to enter a seminary and, and go into the uh, ministry is uh, outrageously ironic. But uh, that that's all he asked for is 1500 bucks, And uh, Parker got it from the bank. And um, when the exchange was actually made, uh, remember, Marion had already been murdered and dismembered. So uh, it was very dark out, and the cars pulled up next to each other, and Parker, in his car, said, I want to see Marion, and then I'll throw you the money, you know. And uh, uh, he lifted, lifted up, you know, showed in the dark uh, Marion. Now, remember, her eyes were stitched open, and from the vantage point of Perry Parker, it looked like she was just sitting there alive, but uh, maybe drugged. He thought, you know, she might have been drugged, but all he cared about was getting his little girl back, and then he'd deal with that from there. But uh, so he gave him, he reached over, and he gave him the uh, ransom money. It was all done very tensely and very quietly. And once he took the money, he pulled up, uh, hit and pulled the car up a little bit, then dropped the sack out out of the uh, passenger uh, door, and then went speeding off. And uh, Parker, of course, parked the car, ran up, uh, opened up the sack, and saw the head and torso of his child. And his screams just rang out through the L.A. night. The people, merchants who were like in buildings nearby ran to see what was happening. And detectives, hard-boiled detectives who arrived on the case quickly were you know, uh, audibly weeping. It was just this horrible, horrible, horrible sight. And then he had to go home and somehow tell his family. He told the older brother what happened exactly. But all he told the mother and uh, the twin daughter was that Marion had been murdered. He did not give the graphic details to them. Uh, so this obviously blew up in the newspapers the next day. The police were on the lookout for a young man, white, approximately five foot eight, 150 pounds or so, smooth shaven, thin features, dark wavy hair. They knew the kidnapper was driving a, a Chrysler coupe. This was the information that they initially had. And I mean, this quickly became a massive manhunt, didn't it? Yeah, it was uh, really, you know, I know it's a cliche now, but the crime of the century at that point. And uh, there was a nationwide manhunt for her killer all over the place. And uh, this guy took off. And because he had such plain features, guys who looked like Hickman, who just had a general resemblance to him, were being, like, jumped and beaten up and brought to the uh, police station by citizens saying, hey, we found that terrible murder of that poor little girl, and it would be a completely different guy. Um, men used to have to, men who resembled Hickman, 
used to have to get a card from the police indicating that they were not Hickman to people because uh, in those days, it, it was so limited back then. But uh, Hickman really did keep getting away. But what he did immediately after getting out of town was uh, he stopped to get something to eat. And uh, as he paid for his meal with one of the bills that Parker gave him, uh, he smiled at the waitress and said, you'd be really surprised if you knew who I was. And he left. And all that came out, of course, later when he was tracked and people were interviewed and so forth. But he, he eluded the police for uh, quite some time. And, uh, he, you know, he, he finally picked up hitchhikers. And finally it came to a head where a couple of guys found him. Uh, but uh, for a long time, the newspapers, and that's what compelled me, I guess, when I was first noticing this case, doing research for another project, is how he kept eluding the police and how the wrong people kept getting grabbed. And it became sort of a mystery, and that's what I tried to do with the book, the ways in which he managed to evade for so long until finally he got captured. And once he was captured, then we heard all of the really gruesome details uh, in the courts and so forth. What was some of the evidence that the police were able to collect and, and use in their investigation? Well, uh, they really, they uh, went around and did a lot of interviewing of people who had known him. They really got a good picture of him, and the newspapers were carrying all this, and they really kind of sculpted this image of uh, Edward Hickman, who uh, and they referred to him as Edward rather than William Edward because he was named after his father, and he didn't like his father. And so he would call himself by his middle name. But uh, they would gather uh, all this different evidence. And at that time, the gathering of evidence was very difficult. And they didn't have the, like, the forensic things that we have uh, today, of course, 90 years ago. But um, a lot of bizarre things happened along the way. For instance, uh, Hickman was back in his own apartment. And they were going around searching the apartments. And uh, they searched Hickman's apartment shortly after, before he got out of town. Uh, They searched Hickman's apartment shortly after the murder. And uh, even though uh, he had cleaned up the evidence the best he could, there were some things that they noticed, like some broken golf clubs and things like that, that they noticed. And they were asking about that. And Hickman just, you know, said, ah, after yesterday, I'm never going to play that damn game again. Uh, acting as though he had just had a bad time on the golf course and broke his little wooden clubs. And uh, the cops just sort of laughed. Eh, well, yeah. And they hardly even looked because, once again, that weird charm, that relapsed charm that Hickman had made them feel like, nah, this guy didn't do anything. There's nothing in here. And so they just kind of looked around, basically, and didn't investigate too further. There's all kinds of things like that during the time Hickman was eluding the police that, are quite fascinating, and that's one of them. Were, were they able to identify him quickly after this this happened? I mean, as you as you mentioned, the police questioned him before they considered him a suspect. How did they eventually connect him to this? Well, uh, it, there was a few different things, like uh, you know, people saying, you know, see with the little girl and the ransom notes and everything else. They had evidence they could kind of gather and work from, but. Uh, Hickman was, you know, even as sloppy as he was, 
he was smart enough to like change cars. I mean, he'd steal somebody else's car and so forth. And, uh, uh, and he had an accomplice with whom he, uh, had pulled some uh, small jobs with and so forth. But then when they caught him, he started telling these wild stories and making up names, uh, and so forth. And they started to connect him to different people. And then they'd go to the house of like, for instance, this woman, he had done some crimes with, uh, wondering if she was an accomplice in this one. And she literally came running out the back of her apartment as they came in the front screaming, I didn't do it. I didn't kill the little girl. I had nothing to do with the kidnapping. Like I said, there's a bunch of things that happened during this time that uh, made it so compelling to me as I was like scrolling through the case on microfilm and eventually coming to the decision of putting this into a book. But um, when they finally did catch him, then there's, you know, first he said this happened, then he said that happened. They had to kind of figure out which was the true story because he said different confessions and then further investigation found that some of those confessions weren't exactly accurate. And they had to, through the trial and everything else, piece everything together. And now, uh, one of his defense attorneys did write a book. It was just a self-published book, and it's not easy to find. But I found one uh, in a library and got it through interlibrary alone so I could read it. And uh, he ended his book and ended his days with uh, the belief that Hickman should never have been executed for the crime. He should have gotten off on an insanity defense, which is which at that time was very, very new. So uh, he went to his grave thinking that Hickman should have been allowed to live despite the horrendous, horrendous crime he committed, uh, because nobody sane could have done such a thing. But, well, that, that, that's what happened. So when he was writing his ransom notes, he called himself the Fox. In fact, one of his ransom notes said, Fox is my name, very sly you know. Get this straight. Your daughter's life hangs by a thread, and I have a Gillette ready and able to handle the situation. Talk about this Fox moniker, would you? Yes. Yes, he called himself the Fox. He tried to believe that he was foxy, that he uh, was conniving, sly, you know. And in some ways, he actually was. But for the most part, anything clever he did seemed to be fairly unwitting. I mean, having the relaxed personality and so forth. uh, Because he didn't plan this kidnapping terribly well, I would have to imagine. I have, I don't exactly have a, a, any background in kidnapping that I could draw from, but it, based on what happened, I mean, it appears that he had the idea, uh, hold this little girl for ransom, get the money, send the little girl back, and go driving off and send the money and go on with my life and, you know, have this money to do what I would like to do. That, that was in his head. But the complications, he didn't have any, like, uh, ideas as to what to do if this happened or that happened. And so when it got to the point where he didn't have a relaxed child on an adventure anymore, he had a screaming, crying child who was scared and wanted her mother and father. And he didn't know how to console her or quiet her. I mean, any treats he would buy for her, the record player he had playing his records, any things that amused her at first uh, had gotten old by then. And so... Now he uh, 
had to make it go away, and that's how he did it. And then when he eluded the police all that time, he was just basically running and thinking on the fly. And he wasn't real strategic, or so it seems. And I guess maybe in 1927 standards, they probably caught him fairly quickly because they just had to go by things like fingerprints and so forth, where they don't have the forensic materials we have today. Uh, I would imagine if Hickman had committed, even tried to, someone tried to commit a crime this poorly today, they would have got busted like very quickly. But uh, back in 1927, there were limitations. I, I even uh, talked to some like modern day, you know, contemporary detectives in comparison to what happened in those days and how they do it today and stuff to give myself uh, something of a perspective because. When I entered this book, I, I really knew nothing about this sort of thing. I, it was just uh, a story that had compelled me that I thought I could relate. But uh, but yeah, that's um, once he was captured, uh, he would be more realistic with the guards than he would with his own lawyer, and they had to kind of put everything together and figure it all out to finally uh, come up with enough of a defense to try and defend him as insanity. Back again after these messages. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? 
Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we are back for a final time. So there are a few pieces of evidence, according to your book, that connected Hickman to the murder. We've already talked about the fact that the police found him pretty quickly. I mean, they traced a laundry mark on a shirt that Marion's body was wrapped in to his apartment in Los Angeles, but he told him his name was, was Donald Evans and charmed them right back out the door. But then later, police found Hickman's Chrysler and matched fingerprints inside to Hickman. And his fingerprints were also found on the ransom note. And the police already had his fingerprints on file from an old forgery case. So they were able to match them. And there were towels stuffed in Marion's torso that they were able to connect back to the Bellevue Arms, which was the apartment building he was staying in as Donald Evans. So the police ended up having to go back to this apartment building again. But this time, of course, Hickman was was gone. And there actually was a connection between Hickman and Perry Parker from the past. They actually knew each other. Hickman had worked as an employee at the same bank that Perry Parker had. Hickman had actually been fired for forging checks, and Parker had testified against Hickman in his trial, and it even opposed giving him probation. So Hickman did prison time. But even though he knew the family already, You point out in your book that the kidnapping had nothing to do with revenge. He simply knew that Parker had daughters and the family was familiar to him. So the fact that this was such a sensational crime really helped with his capture, right? There were wanted posters in every post office, and they finally traced him to the Pacific Northwest, where a man matching Hickman's description passed a $20 gold certificate at a gas station, which led two lawmen back on his trail, and they eventually found Hickman in his car and arrested him, right? And he was in Oregon. Yes, it was in Oregon. It was a, and, and you know, um, there was a couple of uh, uh, detectives or a policeman in Oregon who uh, got him. And uh, it appears, uh, it's a little uh, sketchy because there's not a lot of detail on it because it's sort of a tangential thing about the case, but it appears they never got the reward that was promised. Jack Warner of Warner Brothers Movies contributed some money because you read that uh, Marion was a fan of the Rin Tin Tin films that the studio produced. And uh, Clara Bow, the classic silent movie actress, uh, she not only contributed to the funds because she heard that she was uh, Marion's favorite actress, but she sent a personal note to the Parker family expressing her condolences. I'd like to ask you about Hickman's interrogation. He confesses pretty quickly, at, at least to part of what he's done, correct? Well, yeah, he, um, it's like on a train going back, he's like telling this long story, but he's like implicating others. And it's like tells a story. And I guess we have to begrudgingly admire some level of creativity in that he's coming up with this story sort of at the same, you know, as he's thinking of it. And like, like, like I said, it, it, 
there were a lot of characters involved that really weren't involved. And uh, he mentioned one person where they looked him up and there was no such person by that name. And there was another person where they looked into it. And he had been in jail at the time, so he couldn't have been with them. There was all kinds of crazy things like that. One of the bizarre aspects to the confession was Hickman's insistence that he was being directed by a spirit he called divine providence. You write in your book that providence was described as a figure who appeared in front of Hickman in a blue haze, wearing a white suit, shirt, ties, and shoes. Can you explain what the point of providence was? Yeah, that was um, the reason he wanted to go into the ministry is because he believed he had uh, connected somehow spiritually and that this providence was, in fact, like uh, God. I don't know if it was, you know, the Christian God or some other interpretation of a godlike figure, but uh, he would refer to providence as uh, that who guided him. And he would even eventually blame that spirit for inspiring him to uh, commit the murder. And that's one of the things that uh, his lawyers held on to, to say, this this guy's insane. He should be tried and uh, convicted as, as being insane. Talk about the trial, if you would. What was some of the, the testimony that you found interesting? Well, uh, they tried to, you know, well, one of the things is that uh, Hickman's estranged father, who, when... Uh, they, when he spoke to the press while uh, Hickman was uh, on the lamb, as it were, he said, if he committed that murder, whatever happens to him, whatever justice needs to be done, should be done. But uh, interesting enough, he was one of the witnesses at the trial, you know, his estranged father. He did show up at the trial. The assistant principal, her name was, I don't know if we've mentioned her name, Mary Holt was the name of the assistant principal. She went on trial. And her husband had to help her as she slowly approached the bench. And um, it looked like she was going to collapse as she read her testimony. And she tearfully pointed out Hickman in court. And uh, she actually said something, you know, I I would have to look at the book to get the exact quote, but uh, something about uh, all the things I can think of that uh, I could have done. I should have never let her go, but uh, I was... Once again, disarmed by the guy's uh, sincerity, the relaxed persona. And then she burst into tears and was uh, helped from the court, you know, helped from the bench. And uh, But she was there. Hickman's mother, who uh, has a real history of insanity that is detailed in the book, and uh, it, she was there and had to be carefully coached by the lawyers because she didn't quite know you know, 100% what was going on. It was basically, oh, my boy could never have done that sort of thing. There's, uh, I have a few pictures in the book. There's just a small uh, photographic section in the book. It isn't uh, uh, one of those that's really heavily illustrated. It's more text-oriented. And uh, one of the pictures is a picture of uh, uh, Hickman's mom. So um, it's just kind of, you know, kind of a bizarre sort of picture. So he was found guilty, sentenced to death, and sent to San Quentin to await execution. Can you talk about how he spent his time in the days up to his last day? Yes, he uh, would talk talk to the different guards and stuff like that. Basically, um, 
what they kind of figured out was even though he was talking about providence, there really was no such thing as providence. Not that there was no such thing as providence itself, but there was no such thing as Hickman having that vision. He just sort of made that up, state that, oh, that's, that's what caused me to do this uh, in an attempt to be, you know, found insane. But apparently the jury just didn't buy it. Marion was crying and carrying on, demanding to go home, and he just didn't want her to be there anymore, and he got her out of the way. He was even asked on trial by one of the prosecuting attorneys, why didn't you just drop her off in front of her house and just leave the state? And uh, he said he almost did that, but he thought she would scream and alert the police guards that were watching the Parker home, and he couldn't make a clean getaway. So uh, there was some level of pragmatism, I guess, uh, at first. But then finally, when he was in his cell, he was saying things to the guard like, I wasn't crazy when I killed the Parker girl. I would have killed my best friend to get what I wanted. And saying, saying you know, things like that. So when he was finally sentenced for execution, now he was executed by hanging. A lot of people think stuff like electric chair and lethal injection. Well, you know, this is 1927. He was, he was hanged. And uh, he walked up uh, the steps to the gallows and then his feet, left him basically like he was about to faint and uh they he had to be helped up there and once the noose was put around him just before they pulled the trap door uh hickman sort of fainted and so the impact didn't kill him instantly he struggled up there for uh several minutes so just as he sort of an ugly poetic justice just as he had strangled marion the hangman's noose strangled him. It wasn't just kapow, broken neck, dead. Uh, he was up there strangling, kicking his legs and so forth. And uh, finally, his uh, gyrating stopped. And the coroner went up and put a stethoscope up to his heart and says, okay, pronounced him dead. So he did suffer at the end. Yes, he did. He did suffer at the end. And uh, not to the extent that, of course, the Parker family suffered for the rest of their lives. How how has this story lived on through music and film? Have there been any movies or television shows about this? I know that songs have been written about Marion Parker's murder. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, popular songs written while it was going on. And, uh, of course, that's, you know, sheet music. And uh, I did find a, I find a 78 RPM record uh, on eBay of it that uh, I used as part of my research listening to the uh, song to see how folk singers at the time were uh, responding to it. But uh, they weren't exactly like the top hits of the era. There, there was not, I don't, I don't know of any movies or TV shows. I think if there had been, I'd know about it. But uh, uh, Ayn Rand, who wrote The Fountainhead, who's uh, a fairly well-known writer, she was going to write a novel called The Little Street, I believe it was called, that featured a protagonist based on how she perceived uh, Hickman because she saw Hickman as a sort of a confused guy and she had some odd sympathy for it. A uh, Hickman with a purpose, I think is what she uh, said. And without the degeneracy, I th- she said something to the effect of uh, it's what Hickman suggested to her, not Hickman specifically. And 
then once Hickman was dead, the Parkers wanted to get on with their lives. And Perry Parker even told the press that he was glad it was over and he continued continued to uh, help his family get back to normal, which was something that they had been trying to do since the trial. And um, Parker lived, I, I think, like another 15 or 16 years and never really got over this terrible incident. And when he died, it went by quietly and didn't get a lot of notice in the press. But then when uh, his wife died, maybe, oh, probably around, you know, to somewhere in the early 1960s, I believe. This is all in the book specifically, but it's hard to recall. Uh, she just died of cancer in, in her 70s. And uh, even though it had been decades since the murder, I remember the L.A. paper carried a headline, something like, the mother of famous kidnapped victim, victim dies or something like that. So the notoriety did live on 35 years later. And what about her twin sister, Marjorie? What what happened to Marion Parker's sister? Well, at the time that the mother died, she was living uh, in the home of uh, Marjorie Parker. Marjorie's last name was now Holmes, and uh, she lived uh, there with Marjorie and her husband. Uh, so uh, Marjorie was still very much alive when the mother died. And the older brother was... Uh, like, like worked for a, a big corporation, like a plant in, uh, I believe it was Hawthorne. And he had uh, a daughter and a couple of grandchildren by this time, I believe. So um, Marjorie uh, lived, I don't know the exact date, but she lived into the like late 1980s. And uh, I guess the modern era would have offered her a book deal or something like that. But uh there really is no record, and I researched it pretty thoroughly, but there is no record of Marjorie dis- ever discussing her twin sister's kidnapping or murder at any time during her life. And uh, she was still living in the California area uh, when she died, and she lived to be in her 70s. You know, she lived a full life. So this is a, a story about Los Angeles during a golden era in Hollywood, and we, we've got our own Hollywood scandal continuing to unfold in regards to Harvey Weinstein. Oh, yeah. Hollywood sex scandals are, are certainly nothing new, are they? And there was there was a big one during this time that centered around Fatty Arbuckle, right? Yeah, that was probably the first big sex scandal. Uh, I did a book on uh, Fatty Arbuckle's films with Buster Keaton. Uh, at, at the time, Arbuckle was a huge star in the late teens, like around 1917, 18. And... Uh, Buster Keaton was sort of like his apprentice. He made his first films. He had been working with his family at an act on stage, and he wanted to try movies, so he got into movies. And uh, his natural creativity and uh, comic ingenuity uh, was very evident from his very first appearances. So uh, he owed Arbuckle a lot, and uh, Arbuckle benefited a lot from Keaton. So I did a book on their films together. And when you do a book like that, even though it wasn't a biography, so I wasn't really getting into the whole scandal thing much. It was really more of a film-by-film look at the work. Uh, Arbuckle is looked at a lot of different ways from a lot of different perspectives. The consensus seems to be, with all the research we have now and all the investigating that's been done and all the books that have been written about that particular case, the evidence seems to be that Virginia, the victim in this case, uh, Rappé, Virginia Rappé, did die, of course, but 
it wasn't because of anything Arbuckle did. Arbuckle never raped her. And there were three trials. And the final trial, he was uh, found not guilty. And they even, the jury even uh, wrote a letter saying, we're really sorry Mr. Arbuckle had to go through all this and stuff like that. It was a long time before the public forgave him. He finally, towards the end of his life, made some sound comedy films. But uh, the consensus is that uh, although Virginia did die, there were other factors involved regarding why she died, and it had nothing to do with anything Arbuckle had done. But because of the situation, there were people that wanted to make some money, and the Hearst newspapers knew that they could get circulation. Uh, William Randolph Hearst once said that uh, the Arbuckle scandal sold more papers than sinking of the Lusitania. So at that time, uh, you could railroad a guy pretty well, and that's what happened to Arbuckle. He uh, went from uh, a truly beloved figure to somebody who was just, you know, reviled. And after it was investigated, there wasn't a lot of hard evidence like there is for somebody like Weinstein. And uh, after it was discovered, uh, Arbuckle really turned out to be innocent. But from that point on, Harvey Weinstein relates more closely to the old movie moguls in the movies uh, back during like the 1930s and 40s, where you hear all these stories. Now, articles about Weinstein are referring to those guys, and I'm noticing that descendants of theirs are coming on social media and saying, no, 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 my great uncle wasn't really like that. That's all just been a lot of rumor that paints him bad. He made some great films. Well, these guys did make great films. The golden age of Hollywood is, you know, that, that's where we find all of our classics. But uh, Judy Garland once uh, apparently said something about uh, when she was young, Louis D. Mayer of MGM sat her on his lap and said, I love how you sing from the heart and put his hand on her breast. <laughs> I mean, stuff like that's going on. And Judy Garland's like 15, 16 years old. And uh, Shirley Temple who worked for 20th Century Fox throughout her childhood. Well, when she got a little older, like 12 years old, they were like, eh, you're getting a little old for these cute little Moppet things. And so she went over to make movies at MGM. She got a contract. It was this big coup. And uh, she says in her uh, autobiography, one of the, it wasn't Mayer, but one of the big producers exposed himself to her. And she just laughed out of embarrassment. Like, <laughs> and uh, the guy <laughs> took it personally. Uh, Shirley Temple made one movie at MGM and not anymore. So things like that were happening way back then. And what's awful is that you look back on these things in history and women haven't been given much more respect than they were back then. I mean, 70 years later and uh, uh, after a lot of these things happened, maybe even more, maybe more like 80. And uh, there still is that power thing where uh, somebody in charge like Weinstein can use that power to uh, uh, well, I, I guess assault women or to advance their career and it, it's really just this terrible ugly thing that's going on and uh, I, I hope that with all the publicity that it's, Weinstein's getting that this really just goes away. This sort of thing just stops. So for people interested in getting your books, where should we point them? 
all the, all of my books are available in the usual places like uh, Amazon.com and uh, like you. Well, uh, when I write, I don't write biographies. And the true crime book I did on uh, Marion Parker, uh, Butterfly in the Rain, is my only true crime book. But uh, for people interested in uh, classic films, I write film by film studies of the artist's work. So, for instance, I did a book on the Jerry Lewis films with uh, I co-wrote that with Ted Okuda uh, out of Chicago, and uh, Ted and I went to Jerry Lewis's house and interviewed him, and uh, we're on his boat in San Diego in the San Diego Harbor talking to him, and we got really extensive interviews. And so it's a book on all of Lewis's movies, chapter by chapter, each film from the Martin and Lewis days right to the time the book was uh, done. And after each chapter, after our assessment in each chapter, uh, there's a paragraph in which Jerry Lewis himself tells what he thought of the movie, how good or bad he thought it was. And he was surprisingly candid. Uh, I can't do that with someone like Buster Keaton, of course, but uh, for somebody like Jerry Lewis, who was at the time alive and well, uh, we could actually interview him so we you know took that, that advantage and uh i also did a book on it's not always classic cinema like somebody like charlie chaplin i I also did a book on the elvis presley movies and those are hardly the stuff of great cinema but they were really a, a very significant part of presley's career and because he made so many nonsense musicals a lot of people uh don't realize that he had innate ability as an actor when he got a good script and a good director, like for Jailhouse Rock, King Creole, or Flaming Star. And the nonsense musicals, as silly as they were, they were extremely popular. And even today, they have a light, relaxed feeling that you always feel better after watching one. So that's the type of books that I write. I write about the films. It's like a film-by-film film look at the career. I, I list each of the films, you know, chapter by chapter, and discuss each one. And you mentioned my latest one is on the monster movies of Universal Studios, all the classics with Bela Lugosi, Boris Karloff, and so forth. And I just finished one uh, on the Charlie Chan movie series. So uh, that's what we, we've got going on. I'm going to move into one on Jean Harlow coming up, the classic actress Jean Harlow. Well, wonderful. That's great. I, I look forward to that. Thanks for coming on and talking about your book. Okay, well, thanks a lot. Again, I've been speaking to James Niber, author of Butterfly in the Rain, the 1927 Abduction and Murder of Marion Parker. Guys, don't forget to use the code MOST at 1-800-FLOWERS. And songfinch.com is the place to go for custom-created songs. Again, promo code MOST. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.